Welcome back to the Sizzle Podcast. This is episode 20. Yes, I'll say that again. Episode 20. It's a big milestone for us. And today I'm speaking with Jeffrey Boache, who is a teacher and author. A prolific author, actually, because since our podcast, Jeffrey has announced two or three more projects which are really exciting. And I'll be sure to link to them in the description below. So we spoke during the COVID-19 pandemic lockdown. And that means two things, really. Firstly, that the sound quality is not uh, of the highest standard. You know, it's, it's decent, but it's not the same as using studio mics. The second thing is that there's a little bit of swearing. Um, nothing to worry about. I think we were both just caught up in the fervor of lockdown. Um, but... Yeah, I thought I should mention it as a, as a little disclaimer. It's such an interesting and far-reaching episode. I think it's going to be relevant to a lot of people. We cover topics like education, race. We talk specifically about Wiley, Kano, Stormzy, um, expert teachers. It, I mean, yeah, it was a real pleasure. And I get the feeling that I'll be talking to Jeffrey again and again as things develop in education and his writing. So yes, without further ado, let's get stuck into episode 20 with Jeffrey. Hello, Joe. Hey. What strange circumstances to be having a proper meeting. No, I know. I mean, it's interesting that the connections that have been that have been happening now that didn't happen before. I've had probably three or four really great conversations with people. And uh, yeah, I think people are just kind of, they're in a place for it. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, Maybe it's what people needed to, um, I don't know, slow down and take a few more deliberate steps in directions that they wanted to take in the first place, but you never can because you're always in transit. I don't know. Who knows? How are you? I'm good. I... You know, I'm up and down with it all, and mm-hmm. today, today was a really, a really up day. I, my, I got a bit of sun, um, got my heart racing a bit. Uh, so yeah, it's been cool. How about you? Yeah, we're just um, in in the routine with the kids and being on top of that, and we're quite fortunate. We have a pretty big garden, so. We can be outside a lot. Um, so it's just kind of just, yeah, managing the juggle. Um, but apart from that, because I'm a teacher as well, so I've not been in school, but I'm in next week. I'm on a rotor system. Um, but that's been quite light, actually. There's not been as many kids as we thought would be coming in. So that's not been too much of a pressure. But yeah, it's just the, uh, yeah, just kind of, you know, juggling it and carrying on. But it's been all right. I'm just happy that we're all here and healthy together. So. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. I think the my friends that have found it the hardest are the ones that are separated from loved yeah. ones. And it's like, they might not have even have talked to them or intended to talk to them, but the fact that they can't, now there's some yeah. anxiety there, you know? Exactly, exactly. Mm. Yep, strange, strange times. But thank you for reaching out. That's really cool. I know that we've been sort of trying to make it happen for a while, but it never did or hasn't yet, so... So it's cool that we're speaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm excited. Um, as, as fate would have it, though, mm. I don't have my copy of Hold Tight. 
It's, it's, it's in Kent. It's in Kent. There you go. Yeah, it's in Kent. <laughs> I've got I've got two copies of Blacklisted, but it doesn't it doesn't really because I wanted to read the first line of Hold Tight, uh, but I can't. So oh. you have to imagine that. Yeah. Never mind. Never mind. Um, I have a couple of copies of it somewhere on the bookshelf. Where is it? Oh, there's a copy. Oh, there's loads of copies over there. As there should be. Yeah, exactly. It'll, it'll be weird if there weren't any. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, I suppose... Yeah, the podcast. So, have you, are you, like, just creating content for it at the moment? Are you, are you like, you know, building it? Are you in the middle of it? Like, I, I don't understand the podcast world. Where are you at with it? Yeah, so... It all started with my friend and colleague, Yusuf. Oh, yeah. So we, um, we, we will, we'll just do audio, by the way. Uh, we're, we're not going to release any video. Um, the video yeah. is going to report. But I saw you trying to get the lighting. The lighting on yeah, that's just like seeing my shiny forehead. And I was like, what's going on? <laughs> the shiniest, greasiest forehead. So I was just trying to... Oh, not to my <laughs> eyes. It, it's, in, it's in your head. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it all started with my my friend and colleague Yusuf. So we got asked to do a pilot a podcast episode for the RSA, uh-huh. and we reached that. That's when I first got in touch, and um, and in the end, that pilot didn't it didn't uh, bloom into a full series, mm-hmm. but it made me feel like, huh, like I felt like something really exciting happened in me, and uh, I really liked the idea of that long form conversation and the connection and kind of. There's something that excites me around the capturing of that interaction. Right. That interaction will never happen again, you know? So that that's what got me excited. And so I started the sizzle and it kind of, it has a lot more psychological uh, elements to it now. It used to just be long form conversations. Now it kind of, I, I use a bit of a psychological lens with stuff. But, um it is firmly in the this excites me uh, bucket at the moment. So yeah. I've done, I've recorded probably nearly 20 episodes. That's uh, loads. I've released about, I'd say, uh, 14. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, like it's, it's been a broad mix of people. Aisha, Aisha. Uh, yeah. So, um, Love Aisha. Yeah, Aisha. Shout out to Aisha. Um, and uh, yeah, I I think that there were lots of reasons I wanted to talk to you. Um, I think your work in education is really cool. Yeah, yeah, um, it is. It is. I'm in the classroom day in day out. That's what I do. Whilst I'm also thinking about education on a sort of grander level, yeah. I'm in there doing it day by day, which is actually quite un- unusual for a lot of teachers. He'll be doing it for more than, you know, five years. Because I'm, what, 11 years, 12 years, mm. or something like that. Which is, ne- which, which, which is nowadays quite long for a teacher, unfortunately. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I can't remember who it was, but they were talking about expert teachers and the idea yeah. that because there's such a high level of exit at the beginning of the career, mm. and and, you know teachers getting older we're going to lose a whole chunk of expert teachers and uh, oh yeah you just definitely you can see it happening already really yeah it's scary there aren't that many mentors like natural mentors who have 
honed the craft and have got their insights and have their requisites and are ready to pass on that knowledge. And there aren't many of those people around because they just don't stay in the profession or they retire and and younger people than them are also leaving. So, you know, so the craft of teaching is something which isn't really talked about. I, so I, one of the, my key memories from being a teacher, I, I, was, I only taught for two years. So mm-hmm. I, I am part of what, what we're discussing. But I, I remember the way the more experienced teachers, they would talk about cycles. Oh, yeah. Everything. <laughs> every conversation has been had in yeah. the 80s. And then in the 70s, like, there's, there, are, there, are, there are no new conversations in education. <laughs> and I didn't know that. And so, you know, if you imagine you lose the more experienced teachers, people aren't going to know about the cycles and you need those elders to, to hold the perspective on the conversation, you know? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, they can get quite jaded, but, you know, it's, it's people who are serious about their, about their crafts. That's, that's what's quite rare in teaching. I, I, can count, I can count on, like, one hand the number of teachers I've met who were, like, seriously into the craft and have done it for decades and have really thought about it. They're very special people, actually. Craft yeah. is a really cool word to use. Why do you use the word craft? Um, I, I feel as though you're always getting good at something. Like, no matter what you're doing, even if you just feel like you're not doing anything or, or avoiding doing things or numbing or distracting yourself, you're getting good at something because you're just practicing that. You're just exercising a particular muscle. And doing that deliberately mm. is what I think craft is where you're reflecting on something as you do it and deliberately trying to get better at it and kind of honing it. So every experience of it, good or bad is part of the kind of active research or the, you know, or the kind of like practice or praxis. I think that's the word praxis where you sort of like practice something and you do it at the same time and doing that deliberately I think is the key. It's not about doing it well. It's about thinking about I'm actually getting better at this or I'm having this experience, which is building on my other experiences because it happens accidentally anyway. So you can get people who are very good at being naughty or very good at being subversive because it's just a habit and they get very good at it. Mm. But I feel like, you know, you can make more deliberate decisions about what you're getting good at. And actually sometimes when you look up and kind of, Look at look around. You think, oh my god, I've actually spent a big chunk of my life practicing something, and I do know how it works, and yeah. I am good at it. And I and then you you think a little bit more, and I know why I'm good at it. So that's what I think. Like craft is that's that's how I see it. Which is why that I'm still happy to be in the classroom because no matter no matter how mundane or how onerous it is, it's the point of like being in the craft. You know, even if I'm doing something which I've done a million times, I'm kind of like, you know, honing something. So, and that is rewarding in itself, just being able to do the thing that you're doing. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I, I really like the the application element. So I'm a, an applied psychologist. I'm right. an education psychologist. So for me, I, I'll, I'll be absorbing theory all the time, but I'm also meeting people and trying to help schools and and and, yeah. and it's it's that interplay and so you know my my the evidence base from the classroom and the context helps guide my reading and then my reading shapes my practice and 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 you know it, it, it 
if you're not getting that feedback or you're not getting a chance to apply it, it for me personally, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to stay excited because yeah. it would be too theoretical. Exactly, exactly. So as an expert teacher, how do you go about leaving and joining schools? Because I feel like schools are, they're complicated ecosystems. And as, a, as someone who never became an expert teacher, I always felt like there was a stigma around, you know, you've got you to gotta earn your way in when you join mm. a new school. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of thinking as someone who's just joined a new school, uh, yeah. how do you approach that now? I mean, one of the, one of the most simple things is like, can you be part of whatever team is around you? And actually, do you want to be part of that team? Because regardless of all the quirks and idiosyncrasies of any organization, there's a team that you're going to either be part of or not. And that is ultimately it. So you can sort of like, there's a bit of a myth around like the maverick kind of archetype, someone who's just like brilliant. Um, and a, a, a lot of people like that. And sometimes they kind of play up, play up that narrative a little bit. You know, I've been at schools that have enjoyed the fact that they've got like maverick people around them. But ultimately, it lives or dies on how strong the team is. And really what that means is, is everyone kind of sharing the same core values. So schools have always got these values that they sort of either trot out or they put on the wall or it's in the mission statement. But I'm not even talking about that stuff. I'm talking about just the actual values shared by that school, yeah. which are often not even spoken about. So the school I'm working at now, you know, it's part of this massive trust. And really, they've just got a, they've got a mission to sort of get schools in the north um, sort of recognised and to get kids in the north who are sort of overlooked and tend to not do as well as kids in more affluent parts of the country just to give them the same life chances. And that is it. Um, that's their sort of spoken, unspoken mission. And, and it's all very, all the business of the school is kind of leaning towards that. Um, it's not about inventing pedagogy, like some schools are into that. It's not about kind of uh, pushing a well-being agenda, even though that's obviously part of everything, but it's not kind of like trying to invent anything there. Um, it's not wrestling with the zeitgeist, like, you know, looking at well, what we're saying about gender, what we're saying about, you know, it's, it's not that. It's just, can we put these kids into the same sort of game as those kids? Mm. And because it's quite clear and quite honest, um, it means that everyone's sort of like on the team. So you've got to very quickly... Going into any new, like, it's like walking into a room. You have to read the room really quickly and work out what's going on here. Like, what do these people believe in? And then you either believe in it too, which is fantastic. Most teachers, thankfully, kind of share some level of benevolence and wanting to just help. Mm. Just like most teachers I've met are nice people um, because otherwise you wouldn't want to be around kids all day and spend that much energy on other people. Um, so you read the room and you've got to just like think, well, do I want to be in this room? If not, even if you tell yourself that you do, it's never going to work out. And that, that's when people peel away or get frustrated. But if those core values are shared, then you're all right. It almost doesn't matter what some of the iterations of those core values are. But then there are loads of complications along the way. You know, like all, all the complications that we talk about, race, gender, class, 
you know, um, all the other isms, all all that complicates it, you know. And that stuff is often not even unspoken, but not even like recognised in the first place. And that's what institutions really struggle with. So I'm not sure I answered your question there, but yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I I think I I think about it in a similar way because so a lot of my work is therapeutic. Mm. So if you can imagine doing therapeutic work in a in in an institution, I, I suppose in one way, in the best case, that can be amazing because it's a community and children feel safe there. And in another another scenario, there might be lots of systems at play that are marginalizing or difficult, and 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 I have to create this bubble of yeah. of therapeutic practice within this you know large large uh, organization. So yeah, I totally hear you. That it, Do you have anyone backing you when when that happens? Is it a case of finding that one person that believes in what you're doing, or are you always fighting the tides, or? Or our school's very, very receptive. It really, like you alluded to, schools are so different. So my my yeah. schools are all really different, and I think in some of them, I am that person. I'm the person trying to back that. Mm-hmm. Um, and in other schools, they, you know, they're, they're asking me how can we do more. So you know, it, I, th- I think that's natural that people will approach it differently. But yeah, it's a real, it's a real mix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go, there you go. So I I think I was really interested in your mix of how you spend your time. So you teach and you write. Yeah. And um I suppose I'm I'm interested in how you manage to navigate that that process alongside a family and at least going to going to at least one gig, <laughs> you know. Yeah, uh, one, so, yeah, just that, one. As in, I know you went to a Kano gig, so I, I, I yeah. there have been others, but you know. Yeah, no, no, that was the only one. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so um, how did that happened. Yeah, I mean, I mean, um, my my favorite movie is like Groundhog Day, like by a long way. That's like my favorite movie that speaks to me the most about the human experience and the idea that you basically just got, you know, this one like long life, (laughs) which can be so monotonous and the same. And you've got all these responsibilities, you know, that you have to just like get through and trudge through them. But then along the way, you know, you sort of need to realize that any of these experiences are enriching and building you up and can be practiced and got better at and basically the thing that you're really ultimately building is how kind you are to the world around you and how much you care about community and how much you care about yourself as well like if you were two people you'd be nice to yourself you know because people are horrible to themselves so I just try to be nice to myself like whatever I've got to do it's like it's important you know and it deserves the attention um and so most of like, I've never sat down with the figures, but I, it, it feels like I spend a lot of time on all those things. So most of what I do is being a father, just in terms of like, I spend, I spend time at home, kids making that work, you know, just physical amounts of time. Writing is something which I don't do a lot of, but I think about it a lot. So I'm kind of always writing because I'm always like filtering things around me. And then obviously teaching is how I make money on a crude level but it's also the craft I talked about earlier 
So that's something which I'm living, like I'm living that. And I guess the way I navigate it is, is to not put them in a hierarchy because that's the first step towards like destruction, saying that I wish I was writing right now or I wish I could be with my kids right now when I'm at school. It's like, nah, you, you're where you are, you know? That's what you're doing. And it's the same. It's like you, there's only one of you. So in a weird sort of way, not putting them into a hierarchy is really important. And what it means is that when something is exciting and when it feels like vital, then you make the time for it. And the trick is to realize what's exciting and vital. And actually kind of everything that I do is exciting and vital. So um, I, a lot of people have asked me, how, how, how did you find the time to write like, a whole book, let alone two books, when you were full-time teaching and you were having two kids. And I was like, well, it's because I had, I've always written, which is something I've just enjoyed doing. But once I had a project that gripped me and excited me, it was harder not to write it, actually. So I'll just be like writing on my phone in little five-minute slots or in the evenings, I'll just be like on my laptop instead of watching TV or I wrote pretty much all of Hold Tight with my firstborn cradled in my arm at like three, four in the morning when I took him away from my wife um, and then went downstairs to give her three hours. That's when I wrote all of Hold Tight and then I took it into school and then I'd write it in like a break time and stuff. And the same for Blacklisted. I wrote the, all of that when I was holding Blake, when he was in newborn. And then I wrote it in the little corners of my life, like on the toilet or whatever, you know? So, um, but I think the reason why it worked was because it felt vital to me. It wasn't like just, oh, let me just write something because I want to make some money or something, or let me do this thing because I've always wanted to write a book. It's like I had an idea and, and it had a momentum that pushed its way through. Cause most of what I've written, no one's read. Like, that's a fact. Like I've got, I've got tons of notebooks like with stuff and I've got blogs that, like, you know, this is some of the, uh, some of the notebooks yeah, yeah. over the years, you know, it's like, there's a few here. You see wow. all those? So it's just a few, you know, and it's just like stuff in here, you know, which is good. Some of it's amazing. Are, are um, they themed or is it kind of like, chronological just you write whatever comes into your head um a lot of the time depends on like eras of my life I suppose there was an an era when I was writing a lot of poetry a hell of a lot of poetry um I've probably written more poetry than anything else but like no one's read it um I should publish it one day I think that whole tight has poetry in it yeah definitely this is this is the this is the other thing as well is that like it's like all the things that I've been doing over the years fed into that. So when I look at whole type objectively, I can see like, oh my God, yeah, that's all the poetry I was writing or those are all the essays I was writing or all the little pastiches I was writing when I was a teenager. And you can sort of like see it in there. It's really, really funny. So, yeah. It's, yeah. I imagine it's just like looking at, so some of my friends are having children and yeah. with a child and you see bits of the parents in the child. You yeah, know? yeah, you're kind of, exactly. You're recognising that in your baby. 
yeah yeah exactly right and then and you also see like things that had a massive impact on you that you didn't realize like I had no idea that certain writers styles impacted me so much until I was reading what I'd finished and I could hear the echoes of people's voices I was like fuck it's like I didn't realize that Bill Bryson had that much impact on me or like you know you know or just like shit man I can see like bits of Malcolm X's autobiography in this bit you know so you know but it's always putting thumbprints on you everything that you're consuming you know so that's the beauty of it there's a lot of conscious decision making and then there's a lot of like stuff which is in the zombie systems of your own thinking um but that's why i think the cliche that it's important to read a lot and not just read books but like consume the world a lot but actually take it in that's important because that's what comes out so whole type was good because it was just like it was a big splurge of all the stuff i'd consumed in the style like filtered through a nice like tiny needle head of this thing grime music you know but actually what was coming out was a lot of me and my life and my thoughts and my experiences mm. but just like kind of like lasered through you know through a tiny tiny vessel which is which is really arresting um and then blacklist was something different us I suppose. What was the original question? I feel like I meandered there. Sorry. You have to stop me every now and again because I'll just keep on talking about stuff in circles. No, no, not at all. I mean, this is, this is long-form, unstructured conversation. So where, cool. wherever we go. I, you, you struck me, something stood out around... When you, when you started talking about hold tight, Yeah, I felt like you became really animated. Maybe it was when we started talking about writing. I don't know. But I, I suppose I'm interested to know now that you've had a bit of time since whole tight has been finished, yeah. how do you view it as a project? Like, I, I, I'm kind of curious, you know, um, where you're I'm at. Like, I'm super proud of it because, um, cause it's just, it's, it's just really good, man. <laughs> it's, it's just like, it's really, it's, it's exactly the kind of thing that I want to read. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I wrote the kind of, the kind of shit that I like to read and I really put, and, and, and it was like, it felt like a flourish, like a pirouette. Mm-hmm. Um, like the whole thing, I remember from the concept, like oh, a list of songs would be amazing, which I'd seen elsewhere, but not like that. And then actually writing it, it was just so like, I, I, I could be so playful. Like every chapter, I felt like I was a new writer. Mm. And that was the most playful thing ever. And when I got bored, I would just do something else. And because of that, the whole thing felt like a like a trick shot. But then because it had the drive, I I loved the fact that like I finished the project to the point of it being published and sold. That's part of the project for me. You know, I was like, because I like completing projects. Um and when I commit to a, a project, I'm like, now nah, I'm gonna fucking like do this thing. Which is how I see teaching, actually. I see it as a lifetime project. It's not finished till it's finished. It's not finished till I retire teaching. Did you, did you? Did that emerge as a mindset while you were teaching, or did you get into it like this is my project? Um, when I went to um, my last school, but one, and then I met certain people that were kind of deep into the long-term craft of teaching. And I got into well-being training and started to think about that. 
and that's when it clicks because I started to really think about basically like making a stand, you know, like a deliberate choice of how you want to live mm-hmm. and understanding your own insecurities and understanding your own motivations and understanding your own actual wants and needs and all that kind of stuff. And that's where you can then make a deliberate decision about, you know, so you aren't just gripped by your thoughts and feelings all the time and by external things, you know, like lots of external things like money or respect or, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's just extrinsic. But once you, once you can narrow it down to, to your actual, you know, your actual core values, the ones you want to live out, who you want to be at your best, then every day is a chance to work towards that, which is really, really actually quite an exciting thing. Mm. And then, like I said, like in Groundhog Day, he becomes like the best version of himself. I remember watching that film age like 10 and thinking, that's, that's it, isn't it? <laughs> you know, you just basically get good at stuff and do it for the right reason and you become the best version of yourself. I was like, all right, so that's the key to life. And then, but it, but it, but it takes effort. It, it takes like heavy lifting. So, um, um, but yeah, and, and, and also like work is not a bad thing. Like work is good, mm. you know, um, there's, there's a, there's, there's an awful sort of like idea that convenience is good or like, um, things happening easily is good, but actually work is good. Work in itself is like the, the reward, you know? So I, I like producing because it's, it's evidence of the work that I put in. And also you got to fight through a lot of like pain or distress until you get to something good. So I've, I've had like, th- that's really happened after whole tight. Cause I really wanted to do another one. I was like, I want to do another project. And then you just write thousands of words that are going nowhere. So b- between, between hold tight and blacklisted, actually, I, w- I was so like, I had so much to say about stuff that blacklisted happened quite quickly. Um, weirdly quickly, actually. Like within a year, I'd written that, and that's hundred thousand words, and it was like good enough to get published. But then between blacklisted and now, I've written like tons of stuff that hasn't fired. You know, like I've got a bunch of, I've got like, you know, like fifteen thousand words of a novel here. You know, like twenty thousand words of another nonfiction there. Like four kids' books I started that aren't really popping, um, but it's all good because you got to get out of your system, don't you? You know, um, in a way it's, it's, I think we can get fixated on this linear idea of I will progress and I'll move from project to project, but actually you might have projects you'll come back to, you know, in, in 10 years time, you might be like, Oh yeah, that's how that yeah. child's book is going to finish now. And yeah. then, then suddenly exactly. it's ready. Exactly. Exactly. Do you and think also that's the, the way that you describe blacklisted happening so fast makes me wonder whether any of the thinking around that was happening subconsciously or peripherally when you were writing whole tight. Yeah, definitely. Blacklisted is like lifetime manifesto kind of stuff, you know? Blacklisted is about me trying to understand this one facet of my identity that for some reason is really important in the time I was born, like the pigmentation of my skin, it's just like random, you know, like it shouldn't mean anything, but it means so much just because of where we are as a species. So unpicking that 
that's why the I couldn't have written blacklisted any earlier than I wrote it. Like I'm not like uh, being um, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm not like, exaggerating there or being hyperbolic. I couldn't have written it any earlier, probably months, because I had to have been through a shitload of life mm. and reflective points and like being in a marriage and had kids and had to look, you know, stare down the barrel of like raising two sons and all that kind of stuff to even start to get into like what I, what I was learning about race for myself. Yeah. And actually it was, it was really a research project. It was like, you know, it was a thesis um, because I started writing. I thought this is going to be easy. This is like, you know, this is like black person writing about being black. How hard could this be? You know, but it's, it was really hard. I had to do so much research. I was just sitting there with like a baby in one arm and then just like books everywhere, mm. internet open, just learning stuff. I had to learn so much more than I wrote just to be able to write it, um, which is, which was actually, again, that process was the point of writing Blacklisted. And then it's just happened to have been like neatly put into a product that other people can share. But that was a learning, that was a learning journey for me. Whole title was a learning journey for me. Whole title was me just going like, whew, just me just like getting thoughts I'd had out of my head and my iPod. But Black, Blacklisted was like a curriculum in, in my own race identity, if that makes any sense. Well, and in a way it's, it's amazing that you could put out something as a, a token of that, you know? So you, you went through this process yourself, but you also put out the, the crystallized form into the world, which is... Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. It's a privilege that, like, I, I feel like, yeah, it's, um, it's a nice thing to be able to, to create something in a format that is shareable, um, a book, I mean, I was, I've always loved, loved the idea of doing all, all sorts of products. Like, I love to make movies and I've written loads of songs. Like, I've got whole mixtapes that no one's heard, you know, of, like, music. I was going to uh, ask about this because reading whole type made me wonder if you were m- musical. <laughs> really? Mm. <laughs> How come? Because, um, and even in the way you described it, just now you talked about the playfulness yeah and bear in mind you know i, I didn't know you when i read it but yeah true. I, read it, I had i i had this kind of emotive experience of the author is having fun with this and like th- that's how i read it that there was enjoyment in the in the book in yeah. yeah 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 100 percent. i mean musically i kind of went through the route of uh djing first and the DJ kind of DNA is deep in me because basically that's one of my big like insecurities. I know this about myself, that I seek approval. It's my winning strategy. Um, it's one of the reasons that I write in the way I write and I am the way I am because I seek approval. Um, that can be debilitating, you know. Um, it can also be very successful, but it's good for me to know that about myself. And a DJ seeks approval. The DJ, like, basically has to get everyone happy on the dance floor Uh and play music that they want to hear, but also educate them in music that they don't know about. 
So I I write like a DJ in that I get everyone on the floor and I, you know, I basically get people moving and energized and then I hit, hit them with cuts they might not have heard before to the same tempo as the thing that they're already dancing to. Mm. And I just fucking hit them with something that they have never heard before that I know is really, really cool. And then it's like, what is this? But they're on the dance floor already. And I know when I'm lowering the tone and when I'm speeding up, it's how I teach as well. I was just going to say, do you teach like a DJ? Yeah, 100%. 100%. Mm. I've got a debilitating fear of like losing the room. Um, And it's not just about my performance. It's not just about me up there like being cool and like funny or whatever. It's about the work in front of them and the rhythm. Like, there's a rhythm to everything. There's an ebb and a flow. Um, the idea of musical, a musical way of looking at stuff um, is, is fascinating to me. I, I once like, wrote a whole proposal of how to structure a curriculum along musical notation to make it symphonic. So all the subjects are like different instruments and, and they need their own space and they need a solo sometimes. And if it's not together, then it's just like a cacophony. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that mindset is definitely in hold tight because I'm basically just keeping the party going and it just happens to be a playlist as well. So it's like e- even more like a DJ. Um, I'm trying to find, there's, a, there's this really cool book. I'm just looking up on my shelves now. Do, do you remember, you, you, you might remember it. Do, do you remember this movie from like 2000 called time code it no. was like a bit of a it was this <laughs> it was like it was a bit of a sort of like do you remember like films like memento mm-hmm. you know with guy pierce and all that it yeah. was that sort of era where there were like quirky indie movies that were filtering into hollywood and time code was one it had like a four screen split screen story being told at the oh. same time huh and then it was all shot in one take on four cameras. Wow. It was around the time that digital cameras were like new. And it was kind of like a bit of a hipstery thing before hipsters, but they were really into it. But the director, Mike Figgis, he is a musician. And he, he said he had the concept for the, the movie and he couldn't write it until he realized he had to write it on musical paper. So each camera had its own score. Wow. And yeah. then he put into the script because it was set in LA, uh, earthquakes every now and again to bring all four cameras to a sort of like a shaky like point of unison. So the whole film, which should be a mess to watch because it's four screens at the same time, it's just like a symphony because each camera is an instrument and he just plays them. And sometimes, and so so that way of thinking to me is just like, I love that kind of shit. It's like, whoa, you know? how you can structure something where there's a lot going on, but it can be really easy on the ear, mm. which is what music is. It's like music is busy. Like five instruments should not sound good together, but it works because, you know, because it's got rhythm and structure. So that's a big thing of like, you know, how I theorise, uh, maybe how I theorise creativity. I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I haven't really thought about it before. Yeah, that's interesting. I suppose it, it sounds like you write quite consistently and I suppose I wonder how that fits in with what you're talking about because there, there seems to be a kind of 
a musical nature of needing to bring things together to see how they work together. So yeah, maybe you need to get it all out before you can see how things combine. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think that that sort of helps. Um, as you get more into like the industry of things, there's more pressure to produce something. So you've got to be like more like on it. You haven't got the luxury of just like producing lots of stuff and editing it, but that's still basically my process, like produce lots of stuff and edit into shape afterwards. Even when I'm teaching, I sort of like plan stuff, deliver it, and then afterwards make sense of it, you know, and then refine it into something mm. for the next time, you know. So that's that's kind of kind of the overall approach, I think. Which is yeah, which keeps it interesting because you're always discovering. So when I read Hold Tight, I felt like I felt like it could have been written without the inclusion of masculinity as a, as a theme. And I suppose I, I was interested as to why that, that was one of the lenses that the book took place through. Yeah. Um, one of the things, I suppose, when I was um, talking about it with, with, with Kit, uh, Influx Press, Kit Kalis, um, he got the manuscript, one of the first people to read it, and he was like, yeah, it's about... It's about black culture. It's about millennials. And grime is about black masculinity, you know, almost by default, because that's the demographic that, by and large, owns that music. Um, Young black men sort of thing. Um, Obviously, it's not exclusive to young black men. You've got young black women. You've got young white men. You've got young white women. Are there any lady sovereign? Is that it, maybe? she the only one? Um, the <laughs> I can think of, yeah. yeah. But it's like, so I think that, that was just sort of maybe making explicit something inherent in the in the genre, maybe, you know. Um, but I know what you mean. Was it like you just felt, mm, it's, it's not so much about masculinity? No, it's not at all. No, I, I meant more that I could have imagined how another author might have just had a cool idea for some songs that they really liked and they wanted to take a tour of a genre. And the fact that there was masculinity in there, I'm not going to lie, I used it as a Trojan horse in some cases, so I bought it for (laughs) a few people. And the the grime element was definitely the hook for some of my friends. And and maybe you'll also find yourself exploring... Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I think that's fair enough, actually. Um, It's definitely like... Because to me, it was, there were sort of like levels of complexity that I added to it as I went on. So even though I've, it's consistently sort of like fun, but it's also consistently quite serious, you know, like there's a lot of it. I didn't turn down the serious stuff when I needed to. So there's some massive chunks of just like, it's just like proper essay writing in there, um, which... It's quite difficult, but I was like, I'm not going to like try to keep it light when for the sake of it. But as I was writing it, I feel as though I was able to to talk about other things that I thought were interesting through this through this way in of a playlist of songs that are ostensibly grime. I think one of the big things was I kind of felt the urge to talk about Black British culture before that part of the conversation got lost 
because I could see grime just like blowing up and turning into whatever it's turning into now. And I and I hadn't seen anyone talk about the fact that it was a, a black British artifact. So really there was something political going on from the start. Mm. If I wanted to make it even more about like black masculinity, it would have felt like a very different book. If that was my political agenda, it wasn't. Um, it was a it was like a it was a sub-agenda to talk about black masculinity. Mm. If it was the main agenda, whole type would feel really different. Mm. Because I'll be trying to make a point about about men and about young men, about young black men. But my main point was about this is black British history here, and we're not going to lose that fact. You know, as grime becomes more mainstream, becomes commodified by the mainstream. So that was the political agenda that might have fueled it. Mm. That kind of gave me a bit of like fire to to actually like push push it out there. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. interesting. It's almost the opposite of blacklisted in the sense that you couldn't have written it any later, because if you'd have written <laughs> it much later, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know what? That is that is funny you say that because I I genuinely thought that I'd missed the boat. I was like, ah, it was like 2017, you know, when it was being talked about getting getting published, and I genuinely thought this is too late. I thought like we're like a summer out here. Mm. Um, but then it turns out that it was actually probably, it could have come out a year later and it still would have been all right. But you, you're right. It's like, I was, I was just in there for like most relevance. Yeah. 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 Just. That's why I had to write it quickly as well. Cause I knew that if I didn't finish it, it, it might've been relevant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I mean, Hey, I would be really interested to hear your take on the, Wiley Stormzy interaction. Yeah. Just because I feel like there are so many different layers to that in terms of what we're talking about in, with the the genre of grime. Mm. Um, and I also think that there's a lot in there around masculinity and race. Yeah, and, definitely, uh, definitely. I mean... I, for... Yeah, I offer that up just, just how... Have you yeah. I... I think a lot of it, a lot of it was about race. Like, Wiley, Wiley's not silly. He's eccentric. And he's actually quite a good, like, character actor as well. Because, you know, he's he's not this cartoon that is easy to present him as. And he knows that, which is why he releases songs just when he's in the middle of causing all this, like, internet beef, because it sells, basically. But... He's acutely sensitive to the race politics of what his genre, what grime is all about. And I think that because he's so sensitive to it, like a Richter scale needle, when someone like Stormzy, who I think is also, he's, Stormzy's playing in, he's playing by the rules of the mainstream in a way that Wiley doesn't like and that Wiley can't do actually for whatever reason because I think Stormzy is like the approachable other Wiley is the unapproachable other Wiley only made it into the palace by creating something that was undeniably like had an undeniable impact upon British culture Mm. Stormzy hasn't done that Stormzy has is part of that culture Stormzy is almost like um 
relieve, like people are relieved to be able to hug someone like Stormzy. And Stormzy's so approachable and so like so on board with the system. Not in like a negative way. He's not like a sellout or anything like that. Far from it. But he is a face of black masculinity, of black millennial masculinity that is approachable and intelligent and passion-led and liberal and all those things that modern neoliberal society wants to believe in. So Stormzy can get away with rapping about, you know, having sex with your girl and kicking you in the face because he also basically endorses the culture and the system that wants to remain dominant, you know? So when Stormzy says things like, Rupal, you're never too big for Adele, it's like you, the mainstream wants to cheer because it's like it's an endorsement of Adele and what she represents. When Stormzy is like heralded as the voice of um, modern liberalism for a disenfranchised youth, that's something which the liberal, you know, the the liberal mainstream want to celebrate because it is worth celebrating. Wiley's like, Wiley doesn't like that, I don't think. I feel like Wiley hates the idea of people not having integrity. That's his thing. And I think that he's quite paternalistic, you know. Um, everything about Wiley's biography says that he's genuinely paternalistic, you know. Like, he brings people along. He cares about the culture. He cares about the culture so much that he won't leave it alone. You know, um, he is like an uncle to the scene. Yeah. And he includes Stormzy in, in that. But the minute he gets a whiff of people not having, like, integrity... And it was all about Ed, Ed Sheeran. He was just like, how is it that Ed is able to do certain things just because he's Ed? And then it's like, I can't. And so I think that for him, it was it was a race thing. And Stormzy was in, had a foot in that camp, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I suppose something that really stood out for me as a a complex but important moment was when their interaction because they were going backwards and forwards but then then they started releasing songs about each other right yeah and i have friends that hated that Mm -hmm. but i but there was part of me that really liked that because i'm just thinking about how you framed stormzy in terms of this uh approachable other actually so he's he's doing a, a tour he's just released the album that might have, I mean, it might not have got to number one yet, but it was, you know, going there. Yeah. But he was also like, I'm still going to release fire tracks that, yeah. are, that are not PC. Yeah. That are not even watered down versions of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, oh, yeah. It was. Fire tracks. And so, and, and I felt like that was an important, um, an important moment because it, it appeared so contradictory. But I yeah. felt like it was quite powerful that Stormzy could be like, well, I'm still going to do it. Yeah, because, definitely. Because this is part of it for me. Because for me, the thing is, is that Stormzy knows the rules of engagement, right? In a lot of different contexts. 
like he understands the rules of engagement for being a grime MC. Like you, you have to put out diss tracks. If someone sends for you, you reply. Like he understands that. That's important. The rules of engagement are also that you go and do America and you go and do a tour and you do a song with a little mix if you want to survive this industry. Stormzy is like, to me, people like him, Tiny Temper, to an extent, Skepta and JME, to an extent, they're your archetypal do-good black African boys. And I say that because I'm one of them too. Okay. (laughs) Like, black African boys do really well in their exams. Black Caribbean boys don't do so well. There are complex reasons for this, and it's got nothing to do with ethnicity. Um, it's deeply cultural and shifting all the time, and the, these trends will change. But as it stands, there are generations of black African boy who end up in well-paid jobs, making lots of money, understanding the rules of engagement. Stormzy, in the industry that he's in, and in the culture that he's in, understands the rules of engagement. So does Skepta. Skepta, like, almost like studied Jamaican culture in the way that a lot of black Africans study Jamaican culture. Like, a lot of white people don't know this because black people are black people. But if you're from Ghana, Nigeria, you're not from the Caribbean. So Wagwan blood, all that stuff and all that culture, that's a foreign culture to you. It's a, it's a foreign culture. But you learn it because when we were growing up, I say we like people like me, Skepta, I'm talking like I know these people, but we're of a generation, basically. We were surrounded by cool blackness and that was Jamaican and you learn it. I've got a lot of friends and cousins who learned how to be cool, which meant how to be a bit more Caribbean. Mm-hmm. That's changing now, but Stormzy again, he's a generation later. Stormzy's like 10 years younger, maybe a bit, no, maybe even more than that. Like 15 years, I don't know, maybe 15 years younger than like Skepta or something like that. Definitely 20 years younger than Wiley, whatever it is. He came up having to learn the rules of engagement for how to be cool in his generation. But he's also a very well, sort of like a successful black boy. You know, I know Stormzy did well in his exams. Like, I don't even need to Google it. I know he did. Like, and I know he read a lot when he was a kid, guaranteed. Like, I, I'll put money on it that Stormzy read a lot when he was a kid because there's something in Black African culture, especially at that time, that that's one of the things that's instilled in you. And he knew how to do well. He tackled that Glastonbury main stage like, uh, you know, like a GCSE, you know, and he got an A star. Like, he's just diligent. He tackled it like a GCSE? He was focused. He didn't wing it. (laughs) That was... That was that was deliberate hard work, effort, thought, content, execution. The kid was not fucking about. Like you know, it wasn't just like swagger and talent. It was it was fucking like you know, yeah. And I say that because, like I say, a lot of Black African boys and girls are like that. Um, Tiny Tempers, another one, you know. Titan Temper's not like, you know, road. He's, again, I know that Patrick did well at school, you know, and he can walk into a room with like, you know, royalty and probably hold his own and say the right things and compose and comport himself in a way that can 
can get him through that situation in the same way that someone like Stormzy can, I bet. Like, I bet that Stormzy's fantastic in a room with anyone, you know, in the same way that I am. Like, put me in a room and I'll, I'll, I'll be good in that room. Mm-hmm. Someone like Wiley, he's got some of that, like, old school yard, like, I don't give a shit, I'm doing me sort of thing, you know, like, <laughs> that. Put Wiley in a room and you're like, can you imagine putting Wiley on the main stage at Glastonbury? What are you going to get? You know, like, what, I don't what know. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know what I would you know? Don't know. You, What happens if you put Wiley in a room with like a if bunch we, of, you know, a, a bunch of modern day royalty? Like, who knows? So I think that that's the big difference between those two. But, um, but the big thing is that Wiley's integrity is is like unshakable um, because he is all about the culture and he's all about bars. And he's all about, you know, respecting the culture to the point where he won't let anything slide. You know, the minute Drake puts out a track that's like, he's like, why is Drake doing that? He'll he'll send for everyone. He'll send for Drake. He'll send for, you know, Stormzy. He'll send for Ed Sheeran because he cares that much about it. So there are no losers there. Like Stormzy Wiley, there were no losers there at all. Um, But there were nuances to their to their identities that I think uh, I'm, I'm not sure if anyone's really gone into it yet. I, I probably could, I probably should one day, like there's a, there's some real nuances there, like tiny nuances that are quite important, which, which are worth, which are worth exploring. I mean, it sounds like you're, you're highlighting some really interesting differences there. So there's an age difference. Yeah, there's a cultural and and, an ethnic difference. Mm -hmm. And I also feel like there's an understanding of those differences as well. Yeah. Oh, Um, yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. And their come-ups as well is just really interesting. Like Stormzy came up on YouTube, you know, he's, he's that generation. He literally came up on YouTube videos that became more and more popular. Why well, he came up on is suspicious that he was slyly always signed because yeah. because of the Adidas. This is the thing. Yeah, yeah, true. Even in the even in the early videos, I'm like the Adidas. It's just was so consistent the Adidas. And I'm yeah, like, yeah. I mean, either it was genius marketing, and then Adidas were like, we're on it, or yeah. Maybe it was like a, a Lily Allen type thing, you know, where it was like, oh, this underground artist. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. The industry's shady like that. I would not be surprised. Um, and that's kind of what Wiley alludes to as well, that he's sort of getting getting played by the industry or playing the industry. I don't know. Like, Wiley doesn't like that because Wiley has, like, had to always be independent of the industry even when he tried to make it in the industry. Mm-hmm. You know, he's always had to just basically go it alone and own his own publishing, you know. Um which is another thing, actually. I mean, look, look, if you look at entrepreneurial stuff in grime versus like industry stuff, someone like Dizzy Rascal, his first number one was on his own label. So when he put out Dance With Me, Calvin Harris, no, wait, hold on. No, that was Calvin Harris's first number one. Dizzy Rascal, Dance With Me was like his bid for like a charting, poppy dance song. I don't think his label wanted it. I think his label told him, nah. But then he put it out on his own label 
Mm. Bang. One of his biggest ever records. Calvin yeah. Harris's first number one. Look at Calvin Harris now. You know, ridiculous. Calvin Harris is in like the 30 under 30 most richest musicians in the world. It's just mad. So he, that's one example. Then you get like the Adenuga brothers. JME is 100% independent, you know, and he's never signed to anyone doing the same thing he was doing when he was a teenager. Yeah. Doing well with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember Akala telling me once that people don't even understand that someone like Bob Marley, Bob Marley didn't need like a record label to back him. He was making big money. There are a lot of artists in the world making big money just on their own, doing their own thing, mm. owning their own publishing. And I feel like that's another thing which, you know, in this generation, a lot of people wouldn't wouldn't care less about that. If you look at someone like Storms, they don't care how he's making it. They just see a superstar. Yeah, that's true. But he's not independent. Mm. He's he's had to get bigger than the label to be able to make things happen. But not everyone gets bigger than the label. No way. Stormzy's an anomaly there. Like he's like bigger than record labels. I think. I don't know how it works. I'm not in the music industry, but but that's like yeah. Well, I, I couldn't tell you which record label Stormzy was signed to, but yeah. I, I could tell you about Stormzy. So I mean, hopefully that is mm. a test that Stormzy's bigger than the label. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which you kind of need because God knows that, you know, black artists struggle enough as it is because black artists are making stuff for a mainstream that is like, you know, 86% not them. So, <laughs> you, you, you know, you need the label backing and you need the majors backing you. Mm. You know, I've seen it in publishing. There are not a lot of black male writers writing like anything really. Novels, forget it. There was like one black male novel published in 2017, I think. So one. One. And there yeah, it was in oh. 2017. It was just um what's uh, what's his name? Ro- Robin Travis, the one that uh that uh Mama Can't Raise No Man. I think that was it. Um on Own It by um Crystal Crystal Morgan's uh, imprint. I think that's right. I'll have to double check that, so don't quote me on that. But the figures are tiny. Yeah. Um, black male writers don't really exist. There's only, you know, there's, there's like a handful. So to put something out there that's going to get backed by the industry, you need the industry backing, which is a shame. Because if they don't back you, then you're never going to get out there. And then how do you expect people to become consistent writers or consistent anything? So, yeah, label politics, man. It's a, it's a mad one. It's a mad one. Do you, you have ideas public? about what you want to put out next? Or yeah, always, mm-hmm. always. And that's, that goes right back to what we were saying earlier about core values, because you can get swayed, you know, like I might start thinking I want to put out something because I want to have something out. That's not a good. That's not a good reason. To have that's a terrible reason to put out work, you know, just to have something out. Like what's the point? Or cause I want to make loads of money off it. So that's an awful reason to put out work. Um, that, just... that direction leads you to um, mediocre NARS, you know? Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> exactly just putting stuff out for bad reasons so you know I think you've got to have that integrity and that intent and that fuel 
having a sense of purpose to it. Um, and this is also it's really good to have like-minded people in the industry, which is really rare. So in like publishing, there aren't a lot of black publishing like uh, people high up in publishing. Mm. I was lucky enough to land a dialogue with Charmaine Lovegrove. So we have like deep conversations about, about, you know, what I'm writing, why I'm writing it. She edited Blacklisted and we really talked hard about what is this? Who is it for? Why are we writing it? You know, and that really helped because she's got an agenda too, which overlaps with my agenda. And actually it's the same agenda. Um, without that kind of like-mindedness, mm. then you've got no one that sort of gets your mission or even understands it. If they don't understand it, they're probably scared of it. And if they're scared of it, they're not going to publish it. Blacklisted would have never been published by anyone. You know, I feel like it's crazy when I think about it. Like, there's going to be a lot of people out there that can write stuff that needs to be out there, narratives that need to be heard, and they're never, ever going to get published. Or they'll never even write it in the first place because they think, why would I write my narrative? Mm. Meanwhile, you're getting 10 of the same book about whatever other narrative that the mainstream loves hearing about, you know? So, yeah. That's the frustration. So it's it's a bit political, I suppose, just existing as... Like, life is political. Yeah, it is. It is. Mm. Everything's a bit of a political move, you know? So, yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's an interesting one. And you've got to sort of think, how political do I want to be? You know, are all my books going to be about race forever and ever and ever? No, I don't know, maybe. But there's other stuff I can think about, you know. I mean, I yeah, I'm lucky because I I'm not a creative in the same way. Mm. But I can I can acknowledge a tension between do you write the stuff you want to write or do you write the stuff that you want to be read? Or, or right. you, like, you know, there are there are pressures there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, reflecting on it, it seems like hold tight was definitely something you wanted to write. Um, oh yeah oh you know so yeah 100 percent. i wrote that whoa it's kicking off here yeah yeah i I can see just the flames in your face yeah oh my god look at that ah kicking off there we go sorry i'm using up all of our time looking at a fire this is ridiculous (laughs) Um, flames are so mesmerizing i've had some amazing conversations looking at flames yeah Definitely. It's a lovely thing just to stare at a fire. Mm. Um, yeah, for a city boy like me as well, it's kind of cool to be doing more of this kind of thing. Moving wood from one place to another. How you found it leaving uh, a big city yeah. outside of a city? Yeah, I mean, weirdly enough, because of the way we, we're set up now, not much changed. Like, I was still connected to the same people and still basically have the same like circles that I had when I was in London I also just had two kids so I didn't have a social life so that didn't change so there, there was no change yeah. there like, <laughs> we we weren't going out anyway so um the weirdest thing is that like because I was in Walthamstow so I was in like gentrification capital um and before that I was in Highbury and I grew up in Brixton and then we all know what Brixton's like now 
So weirdly enough, I was often still in a minority when I was in London in a lot of places, mm. which is just mad. So I'd be in like Lloyd Park in Walthamstow and there'd be like one other black person I could see in the entire, like, I would look around and it's just, you know. So in a weird sort of way, even though I've moved to a much whiter part of the country, not that much has changed in terms of like who's around me because London's got like, you know, that that thing of different communities living on top of each other, but not actually interacting. Um, Different spaces. Yeah. There's a bit of a myth of inclusion in London. There is diversity. There's more people and and there are more cultures, but they don't all live in each other's pockets and homes. So, um, so weirdly enough, that hasn't changed anything that much. But yeah, yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, so I uh, was born and raised in Hackney, and so there was there was, I suppose, like a real change in the parks and the social spaces, and there were these kind of yeah. You know, like you, it's almost like you missed the memo. You'd go back like a week later, and it would be a totally different place, yeah. with totally different people in it. Yeah. Um. And yeah, it's uh, it's really. I suppose I find that it's quite sad for me, but I find it interesting the tipping point of uh, of gentrification and how and how that happens. Yeah. You know. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, I hear what you're saying. It uh, for you you have a similar thing around with the people around you. Yeah, yeah. And I'm kind of used to being a bit of a loner anyway. Not like a loner, like no friends, but moving to a context alone. That's something that I've done from when I was at like primary school. Like being the only one to go to the next place, only one to go to the next place. So that's that's just been like a standard. So I've never been scared of that, you know. That's an interesting thing to acknowledge. Mm. Huh. It's true though. Really? What, do you think, what do you think that was about being the only one to go into the next place? So no, I mean, probably just coincidental to begin with, but then you get used to it as a sort of like that's that becomes something of a com- comfort zone, you know. So I'm very comfortable being one of one in a context. I'm very comfortable with that. Um probably more more comfortable than not being one of one but that said when I got into like publishing I love going to events where there are other black writers I love doing panels with other black like I I love like the fact that I'll go somewhere and I'll be like shouting out Derek Uwusu in the crowd and calling him up you know and then Yomi's there with me and then like Nels Abbey will be there and then or I can go and I'll be like interviewing a Carla and then we'll be talking about someone else that we both know. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd actually love that. Like that's, that, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. And that's like having, having like a, a friendship circle that I, that I might not have had like pro- professionally because I never had like loads of other black teacher friends, for example, or, you know, even when I was at uni, like loads of other black people on my course. So that, that's something which is quite new to me that I really love, you know, like Rennie, Rennie was at my launch. And I was like, ah, oh, you know, Rennie's there and I said, you know, hanging out with her and then like Charmaine, that's So it's like, it's cool. It's like, 
Yeah, I like that. I like that. That's empowering, you know. Yeah, I was going to say, hearing you talk about that made me feel like th- there's a movement there. Yeah. Uh, there's some well, control, yeah. you know. Exactly. I don't know if that resonates, but I suppose the way you talk about writing is that it's... It's the show of It's political. And so, you know, having having people that you feel are part of the same or pulling in the same direction must be sustaining and exciting. Oh, it's re- yeah, it's really important. And it's like, like we all end up talking about each other mm. and stuff. So, you know, like Nikesh and his work in The Good Immigrant, mm. you know, I'll, I'll reference that. And then I'll, you know, we talk and then Nikesh sh- shouted me out on the radio and I would like endorse his book and then, you know, then I talked about Afua Hirsch and then Safe, I was supposed to be in Safe, but it didn't work out at the time, which is really un- un- annoying. But then, so there's like an interconnection thing. I suppose it's it's just like being a part of a team, you know, mm. um, which I think is really important because the numbers are small. Like there are not, there aren't many black people in the country, first of all. Yeah. In, in publishing or in any given industry. There aren't many at all. So so it's like coming together is always important, you know. And I tr- I try to make a point of that in Blacklisted. So I've made, I like reference people's work who I felt like needs to be referenced and people that I'd met. And I'll talk about them, you know, um, because it was like, yeah, sort of uh, acknowledging that. So that's a nice thing. I like that. I experienced a real change when I became a psychologist because before that, I think I thought the idea of referencing was a bit stuffy, mm. but now I almost see it as you're, you're like acknowledging the lineage, you know, and, and you're, you're, you're just, if it feels, it's almost like what you're describing with the, the social element of seeing people, you know, in the crowds and being like, come up here. Yeah. Now I really love a reference. And if I and if I read something and it's not referenced, I feel frustrated because I'm like, I want to be able to trace it back, you know? Mm. Mm. Yeah. I really definitely. like that the kind of the heritage of ideas is kind of is kind of cool to me. Yeah. And it's important. And also it's also part part of the learning, you know. So when when I was on a panel with Derek, Charmaine, and Paul Gilroy, that was mad for me and Derek, because we were like yeah, we're like, shit, man. It's like Paul Gilroy. Like, there ain't no black in Union Jack. This is like a seminal text, seriously difficult text, seriously important that, you know, we've wrestled with over the years. And he's like sitting there and we're talking to him. And he's looking at us as like, you know, people who are continuing the conversation. And he's actually quite young in his mind. Like, he's, he's really, really like, he's thinking about now. He's thinking about revising everything. And we're doing that because we're like a generation after him. And so just like that was like a physical manifestation of that, of that like heritage of thought, mm. you know, in, in critical thinking. Yeah. And it was happening physically, like we're in a room talking. That was crazy. And that really showed me how important it is to, um, to, to be part of that conversation and to respect, respectfully be part of it as, as well. You know, like I would never, ever um, assume that I'm not part of a, a moment, you know, that I'm a maverick or I'm doing my thing. No way. 
it's connected to other people doing our thing, you know. And I think that that's that's an important thing to to like recognize and and like celebrate too, um, because it is very empowering, you know. So yeah, yeah. I quite, I quite like it's it's what someone like um, Bernadine Evaristo does um, amazingly well because she champions black writers, um, not in a sort of like positive uh, positive discrimination way either, not in like a lazy way of just like oh they're black, it's great, but she like seeks out the good content and makes sure that it gets a platform and she promotes it. Mm. So the fact that she gave me a cover quote for blacklisted is just like phenomenal um i was like blown away by that yeah and and it's because that she could see that it was a valuable thing and she wanted to endorse it and promote it in a way that maybe she hadn't been you know earlier in her career I mean, she had to win the Booker Prize or win half a Booker Prize, whatever the hell happened now, I don't know, <laughs> um, to get the recognition that she's been due, you know? Mm. Um, so someone like that is a real, like, shining example of how to do it. Yeah. You know? So, like, big up Bernadine in a mm. massive way, yeah. Um, nothing but love. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you thought we'd talk about? Oh, I, no idea. No mm. idea. We've talked about all, all, all sorts of things. What, what 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 time were you on? Okay, here we go. Um, no, I feel, like, I feel like we've had a chunky chat, but do you know what? Yeah, there's one there's one thing that I would be I'd feel remiss uh, if we didn't talk about it, which is Kano. Kano, of course, <laughs> Kano, man. Yeah, I feel like Kano is quite a poetic thing to end on because we've we talked about Wiley. Yeah. Um, and I know that you went to a Kano gig, which if that was the gig, yeah, know, that, that's interesting that that was the gig. So I suppose. I know. My I, wife, um, my wife hooked it up because she fancies Kano basically. Like, oh, I've already put that out there in writing. That's in hold, hold tight somewhere. I think that's um, a human, it's a human phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We all fancy Kano. Like this yeah. is just a, this is a fact. Like, you know, he's, um, he's an enigmatic and charming and just an attractive soul, you know. Um, but what what I love I mean the the thing about Kano was that he's got so much depth to his to his art um, that he's almost going to become like a Sade kind of character like Sade at the end of Sade's like career and she's worth like I don't know what she's worth like 50 mil I don't know what she was doing like one album every eight years like one album every 10 years you know mm-hmm. but still getting the getting the critical you know credit the plaudits and the sales I think Kano's going to be like that I feel like Kano's going to going to mature like the finest maturing thing because um, he's weirdly enough he still might be underrated like oh, I think so. Yeah, I he's he's, so. he's not at the front of people's minds of like a superstar. Um, he's still kind of accessible, despite the fact that he's like great on TV. Huh. He's got he's got acting chops now. Like he he was good in Top Boy. Like you know, there's no two ways about. He was good, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and his art is getting better and better. Like I feel the like last couple artists, of albums, artists struggle 
getting older sometimes. Yeah. yeah. I've, well, firstly, Made in the Manor came out of nowhere and I was like, what? Yeah. Oh my yeah. God. Okay. We have an album now. Yeah. And it was brilliant. And, mm-hmm. you know, I just was like, wow. And it just felt like it was, it was totally relatable that this could yeah. be, you know, stories from Kano's life. But he was older. He wasn't trying to be, you know, uh, appealing to the young crowds. Yeah. But it, but it could be appealing to younger people. You know, there, there were there were really human stories in that. I thought it was... Yeah, definitely. Album. Yeah, he's... Uh, he's Yeah, he's kind of um, managed to be... Managed to grow consistently mm-hmm. in a way which is just, like, amazing to see. And it gives him this, like this actual mature confidence which is like really impressive like he looks like the guy like you know he looks like he is in charge of his universe yeah it's really mad like his stage show is like this is someone who is not being led by any other forces other than Kano's vision and and it's like you're you're in it even even someone like Stormzy who bossed it at Glastonbury and his albums have got their vision stuff. He's he's young. He's younger. So he's got like, he's been like persuaded by other things slightly, you know, not to the point of compromising his own integrity, but you can see that he's still growing and he's still a bit like, I've got to do this and I've got to, you know, be this. And I've got to be this kind of aggression. I've got to be this kind of inspiring. Kano's like, just like, Staring into the fire. And yeah, and, and and also he's he's just like a ridiculous lyricist, which he has been for a long time. Like some of those Kano mixtapes from 2007-2008, beats and bars and stuff like that. Just just crazy lyrical talent for a long time. Oh my gosh. You know? A bar that always sticks in my head that I don't, you know, I, I don't even, I'm not sure why, but it's from Night Night. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, um, I'd forgotten about Night Night. I used to play it on the way into school when I was a teacher. He just would kind right. of liked it. And, um, and he played it at his most recent gig for his, for his latest album. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it, I, I suppose it was interesting because I didn't really realise that anyone else would like that song. It was kind of a guilty pleasure for me. Uh-huh. Um, but there's there's a line in there around he's he's talking about um I text you at some dumb times something, oh, yeah. something and your number my thumb my thumb yeah. and I was I'm like dumb. what I know it's deep poetry oh my gosh yeah and I just, I, yeah that's the thing he's a he's a poet really I mean that's a that's a short conclusion like Ken is a poet he actually said that when he writes everything. He writes everything so he can look over the words and then change the words to give it that extra poetic, yeah. like, edge. And you can see that, like, yeah, yeah. the guy's a poet, like, through and through. He's not just barring, he's like, you know, yeah. Yeah, I love that. Yep, cool. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to end on Kano. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Kano, man, uh, yeah. He is, yeah, Kano's... Ken is the guy. And I feel like there's, there's, there's probably still quite, quite a lot more to come from Kano, you know, and I think he'll have a different kind of success. Because I remember in the interview he had with Akala that was on U- YouTube, 
he was saying how after the rollout at Hall, um, hoodies all summer thing, he was like, now what? And Nakala's like, fam, you just played rollout at Hall. Like, that is the, a pinnacle for a lot of people. And Ken's like, yeah. And I can sort of see both of their perspectives there. Mm. Like, I can see why Kano would feel like, mm, there's more. And why people were like, what more do you want? You know? But I, but I, I just feel like it will get deeper over time with him. Yeah. I think with him, I... Huh, in a similar way to not being able to predict what I would get if we put Wiley on stage at Bastonbury, I'm not yeah. sure where Kano will go next, you know? But, yeah. but I feel like he... He... Very comfortable with himself. And so I'm really interested yeah. to see where he takes us, you know? Absolutely. Um, like you know, part part of me wouldn't be, yeah. Part of me wouldn't be surprised if I if I couldn't predict at, at all what it would be what it would be. Um, yeah, yeah. But I I mean I real talk. I hope he just keeps making music in in until he's a granddad, you know. <laughs> and we just have this kind of this narration across our lives from. Kenny. Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's it. Hopefully, that's that's what's going to happen. Hopefully. Mm. Nice one. Ah, what a nice way to end the conversation. Uh, well, listen, it was lovely to chat and uh, and to see a little glimpse of your of your home and your fire. Yeah, a little tiny glimpse there of yes. of uh, some of the setup. Yeah, and uh, a the library. The library, yes, a bookshelf yes. is. Uh, so I love it up there. This is the this is the kind of the contemporaries with my own book face out look at that awful yeah, yeah you gotta do that you gotta do that you gotta put your own face out and there's some of this is all the the lot that i was talking about you're making me feel bad now because i i just changed my bookshelves um away from thematic oh yeah so i really wanted i really wanted them themed and now and now they're um and now they're purely aesthetic in color order yeah, it's we have for about a week, and I'm not gonna lie, I'm I'm tense. <laughs> we have a bit of both. We've got the rainbow color coded, but then little thematic areas mm. as well. So it's mainly my wife, though. It's mainly Sophie that's been like the brains behind that. I can't lie; I didn't really put that too much thought into. It. I just put the shelves up. Hey, there you go. <laughs> nice one just like that we have episode 20 in the books so it was such a pleasure to talk to jeffrey please do check him out and his writing all all of that is linked down below and if you're interested in staying in the loop with all things to do with the sizzle you can join my mailing list and uh, you know that will mean that you get notified about upcoming episodes it also means that you might get some semi-regular emails about how to use psychology in your everyday life we've had some really lovely feedback from people it seems like they're very useful we've got some absolute bangers of episodes coming up that have been recorded they're going to be coming out very soon so if you know anybody that you think would be interested in the sizzle please do share using the links below until then though stay safe Keep doing your thing and I will see you next episode.
the sizzle.